Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. You know, we've started season three with, again, so many diversified, amazing heart centered leaders from around the globe. And I connected with this lovely young lady that you're going to meet today from Southern Texas, Christy Snodgrass. And she may not know this right now, but I'm sitting in awe in the front seat. What do you call that? Bird's eye view, watching her leading a transformational leadership journey. So I've decided not to introduce her because her story is so inspiring. So I'm going to welcome her to the show and I'm going to let her unpack her inspirational story uh, during my first leadership question. So Christy, welcome to Imperfect. Thanks, Deb. Thanks for having me. I am really sitting in the front row seat watching this journey of yours. I'm cheerleading loud and proud from Canada. And I wanted to have this conversation with you today because we're neighboring countries with the same problem. And I want to unpack that in a beautiful, meaningful conversation with you today. So my first leadership question is, you went to school to become a nurse. Mm-hmm. things kind of changed. I would love for you to share your backstory, what your dreams were when you enrolled in post-secondary education, kind of what happened in what we call the messy middle and where are you heading for now? Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to be a nurse like right off the bat. I started going to community college um, and I took an anatomy and physiology course because I knew that I wanted to do something in the realm of health. And when I took it, I just knew like that was it. It was so interesting to me. I love people. I wanted to help. And this was the thing, right? So I worked hard, got into nursing school, and I ended up finishing nursing school right around my 21st birthday. And I became a nurse. And I had been in the hospital. I had, uh, you know, seen how hospitals operated, but I didn't really know, you know, when I was in school, what I was getting into. So when I was making my decision where I, you know, would be working, I had floated around the hospitals as a student and there was one hospital in my city that it was the biggest, it was the most innovative. It had what I thought were the coolest nurses on the unit. You know, they knew everything. Um, they, you know, patients would have codes and I wouldn't even see them sweat. It was amazing. And I was like, I want to be here and I want to be this type of nurse. So I applied, there was over 150 applicants And uh, they put me through like this very intensive interview process. They did a phone interview with me. Then they brought me into a panel interview, which was 
terrifying. It was every single um, nurse manager in the hospital for every single unit. And I sat at this big, long table and they asked me questions. You know, what's my experience? And that, at that point, I was 21 years old. So I had retail experience. Um, I had, you know, a few internships that I do. And I really had to play it up because I really didn't have any. I wasn't, you know, I had no work history um, before this other than my teenage jobs. So I, I did my best. I answered their questions. And by some stroke of luck, they said, OK, go to the next round. So then I did an ethics interview, which is in hindsight, kind of an oxymoron for what ended up happening, but they did an ethics interview. You know, what are your goals? Who do you want to be? And, you know, some of my ethics were that a big value for me is impact. Um, I love, you know, being a positive light to people, making a difference. But if I could multiply that, if I could teach others how to make a difference, if I could, you know, just get my reach as far as it can go, that's a big goal of mine. So I explained that to them. They're like, oh, great. You know, we we see you moving up in leadership. We think this is going to be a good fit. And I was hired out of 150 plus there came down to like, you know, 30 to 50 actual hires. And I got hired onto an oncology unit, which is one of my top picks. I wanted to be a cancer nurse. I have a lot of cancer in my family and that was significant to me. So day one, I started on the job and I've told this story a little bit on my social medias, but I, you know, I came to work ready to go. And day one, they told me, you are going to orient on this other unit, renal kidneys. And I'm like, I was hired to be a cancer nurse. Why am I going to this other new unit? And the admin that was, you know, leading me was like, well, we're piloting this new nurse residency program and all the nurses are going to orient on this unit and then they're going to go to their own units. And I was like, okay, I don't, I didn't know any different. I'm a new nurse. So I get there and I see all these very stressed out nurses, all having all these new orientees with them, trying to teach them, even though that's not the unit that we're going to be on. And in conversation with these nurses, I realized that the other units had nurses that were so new that they actually could not physically orient a new nurse like me or precept a new nurse like me because they didn't have enough experience. So they just took the unit where they had some experienced nurses and threw, you know, a whole horde of new nurses at them. So that was red flag number one. I said, why, why is the turnover so high that at this big grand hospital where all these cool nurses are at, most of them only have a few years of experience? So I didn't really question it beyond that. I got through my orientation three months on a unit that I wasn't going to be working on. I learned the ins and outs of everything for this unit. And then one day they pulled me in. They said, you did great. You're off your orientation. Go to your unit. So moving from a renal unit, a kidney unit to cancer was like night and day. There is no similarities here other than the very basics of nursing. So it was almost like, I didn't get any training at all. I was thrown on on my first day and within the first week, it's kind of funny to me now, but a, a doctor, an oncologist walked up to me and was like, let's go do a bone marrow biopsy. And I looked at another nurse on my unit and I said, what's a bone marrow biopsy? Because I had no idea. They wanted me to go do a procedure with them that I had never done. I had no experience in. And I was a brand new nurse and I didn't know. And I thought to myself, man, this is so unsafe but everybody else is acting like this is 100% normal. So then I was sitting there thinking like, okay, if this is normal, what else is normal? 
And I soon got a, a big taste of what else was normal. So after I had been on that unit for a little while, so around eight months, they decided to promote me. And that was their words to charge nurse. And they, they, they really laid it on thick and made this seem like this was a great honor to me, right? Like, oh, you are such a new nurse, but you do so well. You, you, you know, you teach others. You're such a good nurse that we're going to promote you to charge nurse. But at eight months in, and given that three of those months were on orientation, I really was not prepared to be a charge nurse. And not only was I not prepared, but it wasn't safe for the patients and it wasn't safe for my team. Now I did my best. I feel like I'm a good nurse, but being a good nurse does not make up for lack of experience. So I became the charge nurse, but on the unit that I was on, the charge nurse meant more responsibilities with no privileges. So I had to coordinate the unit. I had to coordinate all new patients. I had to coordinate my team. And yet they still gave me a full load of patients to take care of myself. And really there was no pay increase or anything other than that. So I'm struggling through my first year and then I hit the year mark and they tell me that now I'm going to start training new nurses. At, at one year of experience, I was going to start training the new nurses. So in addition to all my other responsibilities, I was training new nurses. I was running the unit. I had a full load of patients myself. I became chemotherapy certified. So now being one of the only chemotherapy certified nurses in the hospital, I was going to my unit and lead leaving the patients on my unit to go to other units in the hospital that needed to have chemotherapy given. So I knew that all this was incredibly, incredibly unsafe. But anytime I would question it, anytime I would ask, everybody just kind of shrugged and said, well, this is normal. And I feel like that's where nursing has gotten to, where we look at all these unsafe situations and it's just kind of met with a shrug. Like, that's just the way it is. And I desperately wanted to be the good nurse. So what I realized in my first year of nursing was that what the hospital defines as a good nurse and what a good nurse actually is are two wildly different things. So when I came up there and I started questioning why um, these unsafe situations were happening, I thought that's me being a good nurse. But then I looked at what the hospital thought a good nurse was. And a good nurse to them is a nurse that doesn't question a nurse that will take the extra patient, that will come in on her day off, that will spend 14, 15, 16 hours, you know, during her shift, staying over, documenting, helping the next team. And that's their idea of a good nurse. So it, over time, I began shifting and saying, well, if that's what, you know, all these important people who know more than me, who have more degrees than me, think is a good nurse, then that's what I have to become. So I kept on doing it, kept on doing it. And around year five, I was really burnt out. And I've told this story before, but I, I had a situation that, you know, was the final straw for me as a bedside nurse. And that was when I was taking care of a full load of patients. I was given chemo. All the nurses on my unit were very, very new. Um, so I was helping them with all their patients. I was orienting a new patient. I mean, a new uh, nurse. And then two of my patients had a stroke at the same time. So I'm trying to run both the codes. I'm trying to help the new nurses because they're not sure what the protocols are. And I got my scans back for these from these two patients at the same time. And when I got them back, 
one of them had had a stroke and one of them had not had a stroke. So I picked up the phone to call the doctor and I'm telling him, okay, this patient had a stroke and he's giving me all these orders. And right as I go to put in all these meds, all these interventions on the patient, I realized that I gave him the wrong patient's name. And my heart sank. No harm came to the patient. I never entered in any orders, but I said, I was this close to hurting somebody so badly. And this is not right. And in the meantime, during all this time, you know, I'm working in oncology and I'm seeing these patients just go into crippling debt. I'm seeing my patients, you know, there's one uh, instance that really stuck with me where I had a young 21 year old patient. She had a young child. And I remember she says like, Hey, come to my barbecue benefit. You know, I'm like a hundred thousand dollars into debt. I'm trying to keep my lights on. So I go to this barbecue benefit and it's the day that she gets discharged from the hospital. So she comes from the hospital to her barbecue benefit. She's wearing a mask because she's had chemo. She's immunocompromised. She has no hair left. She's exhausted and she's sitting there serving turkey legs trying to sell food so that she could continue care keep the lights on for her child and stay alive for her family and I just thought why is this happening what like why uh, why is this working this way why are the patients and the healthcare workers who should be the epicenter of healthcare? being so exploited. And every time I would ask these questions about why does it cost so much? Um, you know, why can't we pay our nurses more? Why can't we hire more nurses so that, you know, we don't have such uh, bad staffing problems? And nobody could seem to give me a straight answer. So at that point, and after that certain situation had happened to me, I said, if nobody's going to give me the answer, I'm going to find it out myself. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to go into case management because it has to do a lot with hospital reimbursement, setting up, you know, um, patients' needs, patients' insurance. I feel like I could learn more if I went into that field. So I changed. I went into case management. And when I started to learn how these reimbursement systems were operating, I was appalled. I was appalled because none of these systems really prioritize the patient or the healthcare worker. We're both getting exploited. But in the meantime, there are systems and verbiage set in place that make both the healthcare worker and both the patient think that the other is at fault. Like we're just blaming each other back and forth because Every time we go and look for an answer from one of these big entities, whether it's, you know, hospital executives or insurance companies or, you know, these other big corporations, they're pointing the finger at the other person and saying, oh, well, it's their fault. So healthcare workers and patients start to, you know, develop this animosity towards one another and place blame saying, oh, well, the patient's too lazy. They just, you know, they're non-compliant with their meds. Never mind that they can't afford the $1,500 a month med that they were prescribed. They're just non-compliant. That's why they're in the ER. And the patient is thinking like, well, the doctor ordered me this $1,500 med. He must be getting paid for it. You know, he must be getting it some sort of kickback. And it's just, it's made that way so that we don't place the blame on the people who actually deserve the accountability and the blame. So I've, I learned this throughout case management. And I said, like, more people need to know about this. Like, this needs to be talked about because if more people knew exactly what was going on and exactly what their rights were and the fact that our healthcare system 
would be absolutely nothing if patients and healthcare workers started standing up for themselves. This, these things wouldn't be happening anymore. So I said, you know, I'm going to just start a social media account and start talking. And at first, um, you know, I have some sort of background in marketing because my husband is in marketing. So I knew that I couldn't come out the gate with guns blazing, right? So I started making funny healthcare worker videos because I knew that that was a way that I could connect with healthcare workers. So as I was, you know, gaining traction and growing my account, um, I started growing it to a level where people in the hospital were taking notice and they were saying, hey, I was just scrolling social media, I was scrolling TikTok and your face popped up and I'm like, okay, don't tell anybody, <laughs> you know, like, okay, keep it quiet because I was slowly adding in those educational videos of, you know, what's going on in healthcare. And as I was slowly adding those in, I knew that I would be coming under fire from um, my hospital and my employer, if they knew that I was sharing information about how the inner workings of the hospital worked. So it grew to a point where I felt so stuck. Like I felt like I have been building a healthcare career in this hospital. It's all I've ever wanted. I had this very clear vision of where I wanted my life to go. And then I hit this wall and I've got to make a decision. Am I going to go this route or am I going to go the patient advocacy route and just really blow the lid off of this thing? And that was a very hard decision. And one day I came home and I sat at my kitchen table and I just bawled. And my husband came up to me and he was trying to comfort me. And he was just saying like, what, what do you want to do? Like, this is up to you. Like, I support you no matter what, but what do you want to do? And I just said, like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I cannot work in the hospital and I don't know what to do because this has been my entire career for my entire life. And I work so hard for this. And it's like, right then I felt like if I left, you know, my career was going to be over. Everything that I worked for was going to be over. And my husband asked me a very important question. He said, well, you know, if you feel like you can't do it anymore, like how badly do you love healthcare? Like how badly do you want to stay in healthcare? And I thought about it for a second and I came to the conclusion that I love healthcare, but I hate the healthcare system. And I said, if the system is the problem and not the actual work and content, you know, the career that I've built, then I need to change the system. And that seems big and that seems impossible, but I have to try. I will not be able to sleep at night until I try. So I sat there at, you know, my kitchen table thinking about this and I was like, you know what? I have to try. And I was still sad though, because I thought that my career was about to be over, but little did I know it was just starting. And I look back now a year later, having done what I've done in this past year, and I think like, what was I so scared of? Was, was it failing? Was I scared at failing? Because that's, failing is no longer the scariest thing to me. I would much rather fail trying to change a broken system than succeed at maintaining the status quo. I am no longer 
able to sleep at night maintaining the status quo. So I have to do something. So it's been almost one year now. Um, Last July, I quit my job at the hospital. I went full force towards my social media, not knowing, you know, not having a clue how I was going to make money, you know, how, how I was growing this. Was I just going to be like some social media influencer that's just talking to people, you know, just making content all day? I had no idea. But I started, and as I started, people just started reaching out to me. And it's funny because I, as working in the hospital, when you stand up and, you know, voice an opposing opinion, you feel very siloed because most other people are silent. And you start to think that, you know, I'm the only one that feels this way. But I, when I went onto social media and it was a much more public platform, I had people reaching out to me from all over the United States saying like, hey, I started this organization. I want you to help. I want you to look at this. Here's this resource that I have. And I was like, wow, other people are doing this too? Like there are other people out here who are trying to do what I'm doing. Like I'm not the only one. And so I started connecting with these people and I've just been able to do some amazing things within this past year. I mean, social media is one thing and I love it because it delivers my message straight to the people. And that's something that I was really passionate about early on. I started meeting with all these other organizations. And one of the things that really struck me about meeting with all these different people working in the same space that I'm working in was that I had never heard about them. So I was like, well, you exist. I've always wanted to meet you, but I've never heard about you. And they're like, most of the response I would get was like, oh, well, we've spoken at this conference or we've done. And I'm like, I was just a nurse or maybe just a lay person. I was never at those conferences. So I really noticed that many of these organizations are doing great things and communicating with other organizations and other patient advocates and people that are in line with their vision, but they're not really translating that to the public. And I felt like, you know, being that I'm a nurse and that I have a marketing background, I can simplify all these huge things that people are doing and translate it to the public in a very palatable and understandable way. So people start to understand their rights, their resources, how they can stand up to hospitals, how they can stand up to insurance companies. And and for nurses and healthcare workers too, feeling like they're stuck, they're not stuck. So I just needed a way to communicate that message. So I've been working with all these organizations, helping make their messages, you know, more translatable to the public and building out some really cool tools too. I mean, I've been able to partner with organizations who, you know, have great programs that they're building for at-risk populations, but they have no way to get out there because, you know, sometimes when you're truly serving the patient, you don't have a lot of marketing money. And here I am with a platform of, you know, nearly 800,000 people. And I'm like, let me get it out there for you. Like, it's not about the money. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I do consulting services. I make money in certain ways, but whenever it comes to a patient resource, just being out there, give it to like for free. I don't care. Like give it to me because I just want to get it into the hands of the patient. So I've been able to help grow organizations that way. And it's just been like this past year, you know, it's so funny. Like, I'm like, why did I not do this sooner? 
like my family gets a better version of me. I'm not coming home every day saying that I had like a terrible day and they're getting my leftovers. Like I'm just so spent. They're getting the best version of me because I'm happy and I'm fulfilled. And I still don't know what the rest of this journey is going to look like for me. I'm figuring it out, you know, got my eyes on the prize and just taking one step at a time. But I have enjoyed it so much this past year. I mean, like, it's grown on its own. I haven't had to just like, you know, it's not a grind like working in the hospital where you're just like trying to make a difference every day. And then you're holding on to those little itty bitty moments where you can make some tiny little difference. It's like every day I get to do big things. And that has been so fulfilling and rewarding to me that, man, I'm just... I'm so happy where I'm at and I can't wait to move forward. I can't wait to show the public even more organizations, even more patient tools and show them that this is possible. Like I know it seems like because we are up against billion dollar corporations and systems that have been, you know, in place for decades upon decades, but we can make a difference. It just takes a little bit of education, a little bit of being uncomfortable and a little bit of hard work. So that's where I'm at, Deb. Well, you know what? I didn't want this truncated. I wanted to change up the format with you and I'll tell you why. And it, you know, it makes me a bit emotional because I was the case manager, not the nurse. And I'm in Canada. We're side by side country, but we're not very different. And I was in that same space as you. I actually gave it a name. I called my burnout beyond.com. And I was coming home and, and my family was getting the leftovers and, and I had nothing left, including for myself. Right. And the system is broken. And it just, it makes my heart swell to see your face light up, your tenacity, your patience. And I mean that in the behavioral sense, not your people. <laughs> and, you know, it's like David and Goliath, but you know what? All you do is try a little bit more each day. And, and what I really heard you say through your beautiful inspirational story is your desire has stomped out your fear and that's powerful. And you've been that bedside nurse. I've been the case manager sitting at the kitchen table. We've been privy to more beautiful experiences than most people get to have in healthcare when you get to sit with a family and develop that trust and that rapport and really execute that radical empathy. And I have a friend right now who's dying of cancer and she thinks if she goes to the state, she'll get better care. Mm -hmm. And she had to do a GoFundMe. And it just, it saddens me because our system is broke too. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to change my imperfection question because I think it warrants. What imperfection did you notice? And I'm speaking qualities and traits. What imperfections did you see? And I'd love a few words here from leadership. And, and I mean, you weren't coming into the hospital as a leader, but you left as a leader. That's massive. Yeah. What imperfections did you see in in the leadership? And and again, I need to say as a pre as kind of a a context to preframe this, leadership in hospitals follow protocols and systems that they didn't create. Right. So let's keep that in mind as you answer this question, because 
sometimes people hear things like this and they don't listen and hear the context of, of what I'm asking, but share with me the imperfections that you saw, the ones that you have and where you see this going now. Because I said to you before we hit record, you really are a heart-centered leader in a transformational leadership phase, which I think is amazing. Yeah. So with leaderships in hospitals and, you know, I'm 100% understanding that it trickles from the top down, right? And I mean like the tip top. So the leaders in each individual hospital don't have as much say or as much leadership as we think that they do. So I'm really privy to that. But my issue, the, the thing that I took the most issue with is when the protocols or the rules when somebody, a nurse, you know, even, you know, managers stood up and said, hey, I'm questioning that. That doesn't look right. We need to talk about this. It was brushed off. And even if they agreed with the fact that maybe the protocol wasn't right, they would never take the side of the questioner. It was always the side, the tip top, the executive, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of pushback in healthcare, and we fear for our jobs and retaliation way more than we should. And leadership is not exempt from that. So what I needed, though, as an employee and as, you know, like a, a mid-level administrator was somebody to stand up next to me and say, you know what, that isn't right. Let's question this. Let's go up the ladder. Let's let's collaboratively think, collaboratively think about this and think about how we can change it. And not see, not one single person did that because they, everyone was so afraid all the time. And I needed one person to be brave and say, you know what, Christy's right. That doesn't, you know, work. That is hurting the patient. This is incorrect. Let's stand up and let's talk about it. But nobody did. And that was what was so massively disappointing is I think that most executives, most administrators, most leaders in a hospital go into it thinking, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to help the patient. I'm going to help the healthcare worker. But then we see all these big, powerful people above us and we get scared to go against them. If they tell us something that is law because they have all the degrees, they have the salary, they have the power, right? So that that's really what I needed, Deb, is I needed an executive to listen and fight for me. Nobody really fought for me when I was in the hospital. They just kind of agreed and then cowered away. And, you know, I needed a little bit more bravery than that. And I think it's brave that you even share that because, you know, being heart-centered as a leader, regardless of level, title, stature, role, responsibility, it is an obligation to offer a psychologically safe environment. And I can tell you from coaching executives in seven countries, the ones that don't stand up are the ones that contribute to the toxic culture. Right. And when I lost my five executives 12 years ago to cancer, they all said the same two things to me. Deb, I didn't speak my mind and I really wanted to. And I tolerated a toxic culture. Yeah. And now I'm dying with that story untold inside of me. And it has to stop. I'm glad you're spearheading it. I'm like I said, I got a front row seat watching you. We're gonna 
We're going to put all your details below in the podcast episode description. And the authenticity and passion that you have on the videos on your TikTok, it's raw, it's there, and it's not words for you. It's a behavior, it's a mantra, it's a mandate. And I know you're going to dedicate the rest of your life to this, which makes me super happy. Oh, definitely. And I, you know, our listenership is now in 65 countries. And for any person in healthcare, anybody thinking of getting into healthcare, I mean, you're setting the foundation of tomorrow's future leaders and nurses are leaders. You don't need initials after your name and a bunch of degrees. I believe leadership belongs to everybody. So this conversation today is definitely going to welcome that. So I want to end the podcast by saying I'm so delightful. I believe in serendipitous moments and glad I found you. Glad we connected. Excited to keep in touch. Excited to be your cheerleader when you need it. You're stuck with me now. (laughs) And thank you for being a heart-centered leader. And I'm excited to see where you go with this. So close this out by finishing this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is passion for what you do and what your goals are, but even more passion for the people that you lead. Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today and learned some new tools for your leadership from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. And if you like the show, we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time. And if you want some more heart-centered goodness, head over to our daily blog, masteringtheheart.com.